0: What's up, everyone, and welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we cover how the environment, our society, and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm your host, Mike DiCibato, and today we have two stories for you. The first, we are going to discuss the new letter issued by BlackRock CEO Larry Fink pushing companies to commit to a net zero future. And then we discuss how the pandemic has accelerated market concentration and what the effects of that are. Thanks, as always, for joining us. Stay tuned. So this week was a big week for climate action. On Wednesday, President Biden of the U.S. signed a number of executive actions aimed at putting the U.S. back on track to addressing climate change. They included conserving 30 percent of U.S. lands and waters in the next 10 years doubling the nation's offshore wind and energy capacity, and, among other things, empowering workers in our economy through rebuilding our infrastructure for a sustainable economy. That last thought intertwines with the climate ambitions of another major player in the global economy, Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock. So BlackRock is one of the largest asset managers in the world. So when it leans, it leans heavily, and everybody kind of leans toward it. And what Larry Fink has done over the past couple of years is he's issued, on behalf of BlackRock, a number of letters that are calling for companies to do certain actions on climate change. For example, last year, Fink told companies that BlackRock invests in to do two things. First, publish a disclosure in line with industry-specific Sustainable Accounting Standard Boards, or SASB guidelines, by the end of the year. And two, disclose climate-related risks in line with the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, or TCFD's, recommendations. And this year, Larry Fink issued another letter saying BlackRock is going to be pushing companies to commit to achieving net zero emissions by 2050. And it has raised the prospect of dumping companies that fail to do so from its actively managed funds. So we thought that this would be a good time to discuss the then and the now of these climate decisions the then being what 2020 did for tcfd reporting and the now being what 2021 could do for discussions around net zero emissions or working toward thereof and just to quickly disclose before i go into everything blackrock is a client of ours so what i first wanted to figure out before i went into what they're asking for everyone to do in 2021 i wanted to understand what BlackRock's move to push TCFD reporting did for the market in 2020. And to understand that, I called up our head of research, Linda Ealing Lee, to get her thoughts on how this past year was for TCFD reporting. And on the one hand, she said, the report itself has been extremely useful for companies and investors worried about climate change. And her thought was, with the push for more TCFD reporting, we saw an effort to make more high quality and more importantly, standardized data on climate risks more available to the public.
1: I think that um that TCFD really has been this rare framework this kind of guideline that has actually gotten a lot of consensus among investors and actually among companies in terms of how to improve the reporting and get better data um, on on climate and and, um, climate risk in particular
0: so because of this consensus it was taken up by many linda told me that in tcfd's 2020 status report the number of organizations that were expressing support for tcfd over the past 15 months it was issued in september 2020 has grown more than 85%, reaching over 1,500 organizations globally, including over 1,300 companies with a market capitalization of $12.6 trillion USD and financial institutions that are responsible for assets that are worth over $150 trillion USD. And that sounds like a lot. I mean, whenever you list what asset managers are responsible for in their monetary worth, it sounds like a lot. But the devil is kind of in the details when it comes to those adoption numbers.
1: Not everyone is actually reporting to the same degree of quality, to be honest. Um, and I think that, um, you know, TCSD itself, um, has been looking at the, the alignment of the reporting that has, uh, um, that has already come out. And they, it's pretty interesting because they, they point out a particular pain point for, for companies doing the reporting, which is that um the part about the financial impact um on companies businesses that remains quite lowly reported and um and in particular you know tcfd said that only one in 15 of the companies that they were reviewing um, were actually considering the different climate related scenarios um, and uh, into looking at kind of what they reporting on their financial impact and that 's a really particularly useful piece of information um, for for investors and that actually hasn 't really gained a great deal of traction so far
0: and that is in part due to the fact that TCFD asks institutions to conduct a scenario analysis. To allow them to understand how resilient a strategy is to a future risk such as climate change many scenario analysis that are conducted use what's called an integrated assessment model which is a number of tools that bring together very different types of information such as climate systems or economic data or e- uh, ecological data in and they bring it together in a coherent Framework to create a possible scenario of what might happen to the future. And researchers and decision makers use these integrated assessment models to ask what-if questions, such as how could the world meet the 1.5 or the 2-degree warming targets that are set in the Paris Agreement. And, And this attempt to peer into the future using scenario analysis has created a lot of hesitance, let's call it, in the financial markets and a lot of hesitance in the world itself to be able to concretely say what is going to happen because of climate change in the future. That's why you have things like the IPCC, the Interpanel Government on Climate Change, writing a report that says they have high confidence or medium confidence or low confidence that something is going to happen. This kind of Squeamishness is played out in the financial markets.
1: That's because you know investors are really used to assessing risks by learning from the past. Right, like what you're you're really looking at. Well, what would happen to the asset, um, the value of my assets, if something happens tomorrow that looked like something that happened in the past, like the the financial crisis. Everyone's like constantly re. <laughs> recalculating the value of their assets based on if the financial crisis were to happen tomorrow, um, but you know the climate climate is obviously different we can't we can 't say what 's going to happen to the value of our assets um, if we had a climate crisis. Like the one we had, you know, however many decades ago, that just doesn't it doesn't compute. So you have to try to imagine the different futures. So you have to model what's going to happen to your assets given these different futures that you can't actually predict. It's really not about predicting the outcomes. It's about imagining an outcome and then modeling the different pathways to those outcomes um, to be able to identify what are some of the common vulnerabilities that you might have, um, you know, on those pathways to the different.
0: And as with much of environmental tools that we currently use, these models are always improving and becoming easier for everyone to use. That is something we actually discovered this year when MSCI published its first TCFD report as a corporate entity. And actually, Linda was part of the corporate sustainability report that conducted the TCFD analysis for us. So I kind of wanted to know what she had learned from that process as it relates to this question we're asking.
1: You know, I have to say it was actually pretty enlightening. We learned a lot. Um, and, And, you know, one one of the things we learned is that, um, like a lot of organizations, I would imagine, we actually have lots of different pieces of climate-related information um, in, in the organization somewhere. Uh, you know, for example, we, we have been measuring our carbon footprint. Um, we have an enterprise risk management process and so forth. Um, But I think that the TCFD exercise, like what it actually forced us to do as an organization was um, to put that all together in a more holistic way. And actually, um, that really kind of helped us identify what some of our gaps are, what some of the vulnerabilities are um, in terms of where we needed to be headed.
0: And we were able to do this by using one of our internal models. Our climate risk center has this model that measures climate value at risk and temperature alignment that can be used for. Scenario analysis and what we found is that today, if MSCI did nothing, if we just continued business as usual, we are on a trajectory that would be aligned to a world that warms 2.3 degrees Celsius above pre industrial levels. So, MSCI announced because of this TCFD analysis that we did that it would target a scope one and scope two emissions reduction of 50% by 2035 and a scope 3 reduction of 20% by 2035. If we can do that, then we would be aligned with a 1.8 degrees Celsius world, which is aligned with the Paris Agreement, which, you know... And this is a shameful self-congratulation for the company I work for, but I'm happy to hear that. And that is actually the first time we use the model to understand the climate projections of MSCI as a physical entity. Because before that, our model was used to understand the climate trajectory of a portfolio. For example, the Bank of England, the Government Pension Investment Fund of Japan, CalPERS, have used our models for their TCFD reports, but they used it to model um, the scenario analysis for their portfolios, for their uh, companies that they hold. But this time, we wanted to do an actual physical company risk assessment. And I think because of that, um, because of this letter by Larry Fink and BlackRock, uh, we were able to see that ultimately... What has happened is that with these TCFD reports, more companies are able to disclose on their climate-related risks in line with the TCFD recommendations, and then they're able to make a commitment to achieving some sort of reduction amount by a certain time. And that in itself, I think, is what is important about measurements. Sometimes... I worry about these pushes for disclosure as a way to address increased emissions because they feel as though they're not enough. But we do see that when we acknowledge that these things can be quantified and thus change in our economy, we can begin the process of figuring out how to make those changes. And the process to make those changes can often come afterward in the form of regulations because a letter from the largest asset manager in the world is great, but when... An agenda within a letter is backed by regulations, then it has a foundation for actual change. And regulations are starting to support TCFD recommendations. For example, this year, climate risk reporting will become mandatory for large companies in the UK and for financial institutions in the UK. And they will have to use the guidelines that are set out within the TCFD. So that's kind of a foundation that's being built. So what comes after a foundation of reporting is set up? while planning on how to react to that reporting. And that brings us to the other public letter that Larry Fink of BlackRock wrote for 2021, pushing for companies to commit to achieving net zero emissions by 2050. And BlackRock is not alone on the call to net zero. For example, the Net Zero Owner Alliance and the Institutional Investors Group on Climate Change have also been making these requests. But since we talked about the content of one Larry Fink letter, I decided to talk about the content of the second Larry Fink letter. And to do that, I called up my colleague, Bruno Ross, who has just finished researching net zero commitments for us and i asked him to put this into context and just when you hear him talk just remember that net means what remains after removal so net zero is not zero greenhouse gas emissions it's net zero emissions after the removal of some emissions that have been put into the world anyway here's bruno
2: we have countries that have come out with net zero targets you know japan china uh, South Korea, uh, the EU, the, the Biden administration is also talking about net zero. So that's one thing at the country level. Uh, then you have a lot of companies that have come out with net zero targets, uh, which is really about reducing their emissions um, uh, of their of their activities. And then you have investors that and, and lenders, so the financial institutions that are talking about net zero. And in their case, um, it's generally, it could mean different things, but it's generally about um you know the, their portfolios so their loan books for lenders or their investment portfolios being uh, also net zero which really means therefore that the companies that they invest in uh, themselves have to be have to be net zero
0: so many entities have made these sorts of commitments most have made targets that they would like to meet by 2050 but some have shortened them especially tech companies to about 2030 and here there is a tension a timeline that is too long denotes a lack of ambition But a timeline that is too short could be unrealistic. But if most can meet their net zero targets by 2050, we stand a good chance in meeting the objectives of the Paris Agreement. And Bruno told me that there's a fair amount of momentum behind these net zero targets and trying to meet them, which is great. But like with those that are using the TCFD recommendations and how many people are starting to use them that we talked about earlier with Linda, the devil is in the details. It's excellent that a company like Facebook or Google has made a net zero commitment, but these online companies have relatively low emissions. What you need to pay attention to are companies like construction material companies, like a cement company, who have made a net zero claim because those are the ones that we need to start really... Figuring out how to decarbonize their operations and how to decarbonize their materials in general.
2: If you're uh, a company that is active in a business which has substitutes or alternative ways of manufacturing, or if that's what you're doing, or, or I'm thinking here of utilities, right? So there are different ways to generate uh, um, electricity for electricity utilities. Uh, you can move away from fossil fuel generation and uh, towards low carbon you know renewables or even potentially hydro um, or the other forms of low carbon uh, generation these are there are alternatives and it might they might not be free it might be costly to change that but it, it might at least it 's at least possible uh, for other types of businesses it 's a lot harder and you hit the nail on the head with cement because cement is one of those where the emissions um, are not related to the use of fossil fuel, but rather through a chemical reaction of, of calcination, which uh, is, uh, is, is, is you know impossible to avoid as of today, uh, and so, uh, and cement doesn't have good substitutes as of today. So when you're a company that has, uh, if you're a cement company with a net zero target, it's a lot harder. And and um, you know CRH is a cement company that has such a target. And for them, what that means, if you look at the disclosure of the company, what it means is actually looking into carbon capture and storage.
0: Okay, so there it is. The big concern with net zero commitments, the net in net zero, the removal of carbon emissions and how you can do that. Right now, things like carbon capture technology are really you know young and they're not that developed. and. Also, it's kind of hard to quantify how much carbon you've actually removed from the atmosphere. Now, that doesn't negate the importance of the market. It's just me saying the applicability of the technology is still in flux. For example, that cement company that Bruno mentioned, CRH, its scope one emissions last year were about 34 megatons of CO2. And as we have talked about before, it is hard at the moment to make cement more efficient because the emissions are locked into the chemical reaction needed to actually make cement. So in order to meet its net zero goals, which which are very good, CRH is going to have to figure out how to net its emissions in some way. And I just want to say it's very difficult for companies sometimes because when they make these commitments, they obviously are going to get challenged on them. But CRH is one of the only companies in the cement industry that has done this. So... The fact that they have made this target is an important first step. Uh,
2: and when you look at the global capacity uh, worldwide of cal- carbon capture and storage, um, according to the Global CCS Institute that keeps track of that, it's forty megatons. So it's just a little bit more than just CRH. And of course, uh, it's unlikely that CRH will be able to to use all of the all of those um, all of the capacity that they need, right? So the technological feasibility of relying on carbon capture and storage today is is not there. That doesn't mean it won't be there, especially if you're looking at a three decade target, it, it's you know entirely possible that it will be there, but at the moment it's it's not there and so that's that's definitely something to to bear in mind.
0: You can also try to get to net zero by using something called carbon offsets where you pay someone else to emit less, thus lowering your net emissions or by planting trees or conserving a forest which all again excellent things and there are questions around the effectiveness of this trees usually take around 50 years to remove enough carbon from the atmosphere to be considered a carbon sink and what if you paid someone not to pollute who was already not going to pollute what have you really achieved larry fink was asked this exact question in an interview with squawk box on cnbc and he said he was confident in the process of carbon offsets and that he was confident in the advancement of the carbon removal technology and carbon offsets market it is something that is echoed By groups like the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that noted in their massive assessment report on climate change that the advancement of carbon capture technology and the continued development of a carbon offset scheme was vital for our society to stave off the worst effects of climate change. So with all that in mind, it seems that. Even though there are problems with these pushes, even though more needs to be done, they are important to pay attention to and they are important steps in trying to lower our world's net emissions. Multiple states' attorney general in the U.S. closed out 2020 with a barrage of suits against Google and Facebook that were alleging this anti-competitive behavior. The EU followed up all this by enacting sweeping powers against technology firms, and they passed the Digital Services Act and Digital Markets Act. Uh, Then Amazon decided to grow to a scale unseen by many countries. Basically, 2020 accelerated two trends that have been building for some time. Firm concentration and anxiety over firm concentration. And I have with me my colleague, Anil Rao, who, along with another one of my colleagues, Rick Marshall, looked at the current state of market concentration over the winter break. They looked at market concentration a couple of ways. They examined... Concentration using what is called the Herfindahl-Hirschman index that measures industry concentration by both market capitalization and what's called smooth sales. Don't worry about that, but it's not important. And a higher value basically indicates a more competitive industry in the HHI index and a lower value indicates a more monopolistic industry. And they looked at the share of total sales that one company commands in the sector and that company's market cap as well to understand what firm concentration has started to look like in 2021 what they found was that as a whole market concentration is increasing meaning there are less firms in the market and those firms are getting a lot of money and attracting a lot of attention of regulators and that this is continuing to happen due to the pandemic but i guess anil i'm curious why you wanted to look at market concentration in the first place Could you put its importance into context for me, uh, if you will?
3: Regulators, consumers, investors could likely be grappling with the influence of a handful of firms throughout 2021. This could be one of the major headwinds that investors face. Um, And intuitively, we feel market concentration from a few firms in our daily lives. I know my own personal spending on Amazon um, has soared throughout the pandemic. Uh, a handful of firms, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google, we've come to subordinate our lives to many of these firm services. Um, and these firms, in some cases, run parallel sovereign services. Apple runs a bus system throughout San Francisco. Amazon, in effect, runs a a uh, parallel postal service, right? So these firms have just come come to dominate our lives, but they've also come to dominate markets. Um, and we've looked at this before. We've looked at, say, what is the the largest firms' weight within a broad-based equity index? Right. Right now, um, you know the the weight of those five firms that I mentioned is you know over twenty percent within the U.S. equity market. So that's you know, nearing all-time highs. Uh, these firms, the effect, their you know their their growing size over the last few years. Have distorted some well established investment rules of thumb or uh, you know uh, let 's call them um, uh, they 've they 've distorted a well known value premium they 've distorted a size premium they 've distorted real estate markets where those firms are based they 've you know driven high levels of income inequality, so we think that these firms you know the in the influence of these firms are something that regulators, consumers, investors are probably going to be thinking about, right? Um, so what we did, what we did is we kind of examined across a couple of different dimensions, sales concentration, market cap concentration, how did firms influence the industry that they operate in, right? Um, now, that's kind of interesting because it turns out the Department of Justice looks at firms' influence within their own industry, within their own market, as one measure of monopolistic behavior. And we're not setting out to try to prove if a market is competitive or to prove if a firm is engaging in monopolistic behavior or not, Um, but one of the catalysts for this work that we've done was the end of 2020 saw a flurry of activity, of legal activity, with state attorney generals launching um, lawsuits against Google and Facebook around cartel pricing, right? Um, and the European Union followed suit with uh, you know the Digital Services Act and Digital Markets Act, which really enacted sweeping power against technology firms. So clearly this is on regulators' mind. it could very well be on investors' mind throughout 2021.
0: I think what you said there about inequality—that—that's been on my mind a lot with 2020 um, and the pandemic in general, because we saw uh, so many people lose their jobs, inequality skyrocket, but then we also saw the stock market skyrocket, and. That seems like concentration could be a way to kind of understand that. I'm I'm curious, though, if you and Rick saw anything that you found as shocking. You know, when we think of the retail food and shopping industry, everyone knows that Walmart commands a lot of the sales. But were there some other findings that you had that were particularly surprising?
3: Yeah, one of the surprises was just the speed at which this concentration happened, right? So five or ten years ago... Some of these same industries, technology, hardware, software, media, retailing, yes, they were concentrated, but not as much and not as rapidly as they concentrated over the last 12 months. So just think of a firm like Apple, right? It came into 2020 at the start of the pandemic as a trillion dollar firm, and it put on another trillion over the ensuing four months, right? So it's ended 2020, um, well over a $2 trillion firm. So the effect of that in its own industry, within the technology hardware industry is Apple is not only the largest firm, but it absorbs 80 percent of the profits in that industry. It has 50 percent of the sales. It's virtually um, while that size of that industry, while the size of the tech hardware industry, is well over 100 firms, right? It's almost as though it's one firm and 99 others. One firm that really captures almost all of the profits and then, and then a you know, handful of smaller firms kind of floating around the big whale. Um, and so that was surprising, it just how rapidly these industries became concentrated over the last couple of years.
0: And that's it for the week. I want to thank Linda and Bruno and Anil for joining me to discuss this week's news with She twist. I want to thank you so much for joining us. Uh, If you like what you heard, don't forget to rate and review us on wherever you get your podcasts. I really think you can only do that on your cell phone, but you know, wherever you get them, try to rate and review them. Uh, I really appreciate it. And don't forget to subscribe. Thanks again for joining us and have a great rest of the week.